Hello. Welcome to the Athenaeum. It's wonderful to see so many of you here today. Um, when we last opened a new library at Goucher College, it was 1953, and President Otto Krausauer said, we believe the opening of a new college library is an event of the first magnitude. And that's how we feel at Goucher in 2009. Uh, that, those remarks opened a two-day conference that uh, was titled The College Library in a Changing World, and we, it was attended by almost as many people as we have here today and they represented many states and institutions. We had librarians from Columbia University, as we do today, from Sweetbriar College and Franklin and Marshall, as we do today, and we had the directors of the Enoch Pratt and Baltimore County Libraries, and they are here today too, and we had representatives of many libraries in Maryland, as well as alumni, faculty, students, staff, and many, many others. Uh, today's event is not only celebrating the new library in the Athenaeum, it's part of the official opening of the college's year-long celebration of our 125th anniversary. It's very fitting because, of course, the library is the guardian of that long and distinguished past. But a building as significant as the Athenaeum also serves as a token of faith in the future as we move forward into our next 125 years. Now, I'm going to take advantage of having this platform. I didn't introduce myself. I'm Nancy Magnuson. I'm the college librarian here at Goucher. I want to thank and acknowledge just a few of the people who got us here today. Um, planning and building this beautiful new library has been a 10-year journey that has engaged hundreds hundreds of members of the Goucher community. Faculty, staff, administration, and several generations of Goucher students have all had input into this building. And the list is so long that I'm, I know I'll miss some people, and I hope you all know who you are and, and how grateful the college and I are to you for everything you've done. The first person I want to mention, though, is Sandy Younger. Without his vision and commitment for this project, we would not have had it. Thank you, Sandy. Uh, we're not going to have applause for everyone. It'll take too long. This is like the, you know, like graduation or the Academy Awards. Um, the trustees have just been enormously supportive of this project, along with the many donors to the building. Patty and Mike Batza, as, as co-chairs of the campaign, have been phenomenal. Um, the very talented staff of the library has done an amazing amount of planning, reorganizing, and just plain hard work throughout the last decade, and we also want to collectively thank our incredible Goucher colleagues in so many departments, but especially in information technology and in development. They've been great. And we want to thank our wonderful friends of the library group for their help in getting out the word about the importance of libraries. They're celebrating their 60th anniversary this year, so it's really an anniversary year for us. Uh, building the Athenaeum has been a happier experience through the efforts of three very special people, and each of these people represents many, many others, but they brought particular grace to the, um, to the endeavor, and those are our three project managers, Linda Barone of Goucher College, John Graham from RMJM Architects, and Bill Brandt from Whiting-Turner. They've just been fabulous to work with, and thank you, friends. 
Um, and I, I do want to personally thank my friends and family, my very supportive husband, who's been patiently, all of them, listening to many stories of the Athenaeum for, for many years, and a, just a fabulous network of professional colleagues in, in the library of profession, and many of them are here today, and I'm really happy to see you all. Thank you. Um, and lastly, I, just, I really want to thank uh, Goucher students who've been exploring every corner of the Athenaeum for the last few weeks. And their, their enthusiasm for the new space is contagious. Uh, the single most frequent word I've heard is awesome. <laughs> so in the spirit of that 1953 conference, we decided to gather this outstanding group of people who are involved with libraries and library buildings they're all coming from different perspectives, but they share a passion for libraries that has brought them to leadership roles in our, in our field. The world is changing in different ways than it was in 1953 when their concerns reflected the influence of the Cold War, but perhaps at a, at a greater pace now. It's an exhilarating time for libraries and librarians. We and our users are confronted with an unprecedented array of choices. How do we best move forward? Okay, Carla Hayden, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, is a former president of the American Library Association. Among her many awards, she was a Ms. Magazine Woman of the Year in 2003 and Library Journal Librarian of the Year in 1995. She's a graduate of Roosevelt University with an MA and a PhD from the University of Chicago. She was elected to the Goucher Board of Trustees in 1998 and serves on a great number of other boards as well. After graduating from Goucher College, Kathy Alamong Jacob earned her MA from Georgetown and her PhD from Johns Hopkins. She says she became a historian because of two people, her grandfather and Jean Baker, her American history professor here at Goucher. She's the author of, of several books and has a new one coming out in January, King of the Lobby, The Life and Realm of Sam Ward. Uh, Jim Neal. Jim is Vice President for Information Services and University Librarian at Columbia University. He leads there academic computing and a system of 25 libraries. He served on many boards as well and in 1997 was the Academic and Research Librarian of the Year. And during his, in 1998 as uh, when he was currently uh, Dean of Libraries at Johns Hopkins University. He served as a consultant to Goucher when we first began planning the expansion of our library. We've been at this for quite a while. Uh, we haven't known Joe Rizzo quite as long. I think it was another year or so before we brought Joe on. Joe's the library, Joe Rizzo is the library specialist at RMJM Architects. This was so long ago, they had a different name at the time. It was the Hillier Group. Joe's a member of the American Institute of Architects and the American Library Association. He's built many, many library projects. Some of his clients are in this room. And uh, his Maryland projects, his most recent one, is the library for uh, Loyola and Notre Dame, the two colleges that share a library here in Baltimore. And he's also, he, his other projects in Maryland, among his other projects in Maryland, were the libraries of Hood and McDaniel Colleges. Uh, Joe's published widely in library publications and is a frequent speaker about library buildings. Roberta Stevens, we've just met today for the first time. I'm so pleased she's here. Roberta is president-elect of the American Library Association. She's been at the Library of Congress for 24 years, following several positions in school, public, and academic libraries. 
Her positions at LC have been very high profile. She managed their three-year bicentennial program that netted um, $80 million. So stick around, Roberta. <laughs> uh, for library collections projects and a scholarly center. She's also the uh, project manager for the hugely successful National Book Festival, which is a, a collaborative project of the Library of Congress and the Office of the First Lady. Now, what we've asked is for each participant to speak briefly from his or her own perspective on libraries, and really just for a few minutes, and then to join in a conversation that's going to be moderated by our president, uh, Sandy Unger, and then we'll have some time for audience questions. Uh, and I'll, I'm going to turn this over to Sandy Unger to manage the panel. Sandy became Goucher's 10th president in 2001, following stints as the director of Voice of America and 13 years as the dean of the School of Communications at American University. He's the author of many books and was host of NPR's All, Consi all Things Considered in the 1980s. He's also a good library user, and I want you all to know that one of the first acts of his after accepting the position at Goucher, even before he arrived on campus, was to join the Friends of the Library. So, Sandy, over to you. <laughs> It is difficult not to extend uh, Nancy's thank you remarks to many other people in the room. Uh, Nancy's been very gracious. I, Nancy and I have uh, really been partners in this project, and uh, we haven't had any major fights, at least not in several years. <laughs> so that's, um, that's pretty good, because there were a lot of issues uh, to be dealt with in creating this building for, for the campus, and it really is meant to be a campus center. Joe Rizzo will perhaps talk about, about how that evolved. And uh, it's hard not to be emotional about all this. We've been working on this. this is, it's been seven years since we had this idea, maybe seven and a half by now. And uh, a very uh, exciting process. Sometimes it seemed, for someone who most of whose career was spent as a journalist, it seemed hopelessly slow to me, the, the progress. But, but um, here we are. And uh, it's a very exciting and, as I said, emotional moment. This is another first in the uh, Hyman Forum of the Athenaeum. And we're so grateful to all of the people who've been generous to us. And you'll eventually be able to see all their names all over the building. That's still a work in progress. But uh, we do appreciate all the help we've had. I think we should get on with this uh, event of the first magnitude, to quote my uh, predecessor, Otto Kraushaar. Um, and I love the fact that the panel has the same na name as the book of essays that was issued when the Julia Rogers Library was opened in 1953, the uh, college library in a changing world. Uh, we think our world is changing faster than it was in 1953, but I think the pace of change probably seemed pretty dizzying then, too, to President Krauser and other people involved in this project. Um, I think we'll, we'll start. We have asked people to speak briefly, so we have an opportunity for conversation and for you to participate. There are microphones on either side here at the bottom of the forum, and uh, we'll welcome questions uh, in a little while. Uh, Carla. Thank you, and good afternoon. I must start by saying that I'm having a little case of library envy at this moment. <laughs> 
So keep that in mind during my remarks. But although as a librarian, I, you can imagine, I'm very excited about the opening of this wonderful, wonderful new building that puts a library squarely in the center of a place that we think will surely be one of the major intersections in campus life. But I'm also very proud that my role today on this panel is not as a librarian, but as a Goucher trustee. And I look forward to hearing from Kathy um, as she reflects on the importance of the library in her life at Goucher, because I distinctly remember my own experiences browsing in the stacks of a great campus library that led to my present career, but also a lot of serendipity. And also being on the panel with one of the world's most noted librarians. Um, Nancy gave you some of Jim's background, but he was just featured in American Libraries as the best of 2009 with a Melville Dewey Award in a librarianship. Melville Dewey still holds a punch. Um, and as a librarian, being on a panel with Jim could be rather intimidating. But as a trustee, I'm very proud that Jim served as a consultant to the project starting in 1999 as the college tried to determine how the library would continue to advance the mission of the college in what we all know was a rapidly shifting environment. We were also very fortunate with the college to have an architect who had a great environmental consciousness as well as an astute understanding of the potential of a library to be an integral part of a building such as this that will be a true beacon in campus life. And I think you all should know that the significance of this event is really underscored by the participation of Roberta Stevens, who was recently elected, um, and she really didn't have much competition, but she was uh, elected as the president of the oldest and largest group dedicated to libraries and librarianship. When I thought about the theme for this session and that it's the same one as when Goucher opened the Julia Rogers Library in 1953, the college library in a changing world, it really resonated because we are witnessing, as you all probably see in your own lives, the impact of technology on every, on every aspect in the academic environment, including scholarship, publishing, information dissemination, and of course, libraries. It's been a very special experience to be part of the Goucher Board at this time when the future of the campus was being considered. I was honored to be part of the Goucher family. Its reputation was well known. One of Pratt's most famous librarians, Sarah Siebert, was an alumna, and you can see her uh, resource center upstairs. And I learned more about the programs and the faculty and the trustees during my time here. And I was even more impressed by the commitment to excellence and an, what I would call an unflinching resolve to shape the college to endure and even thrive in challenging times. I even wish that I had been a student here too. Now these looking, these considerations included looking at the existing library and the plans for the college in general and with many considerations from the philosophical to the fiscal. And you can imagine my delight when a commitment was made to make the library a part of a new structure, a proposed Antheneum. Now the concept sent some of us to the dictionary and we soon learned, though, that such a building would do what it would do for the college and how it would place Goucher in a position to continue its momentum and advance its mission. And I'm proud to say as a librarian whose career has focused primarily on public libraries, which are often called the People's University, 
that as a trustee, I did not have to be that lone voice in the forest advocating for my particular belief. In fact, I happily listened to discussions about the importance of the library, the plans for it to be part of such a prominent project on campus, and the strong belief that although how libraries operate and what they look like may change, what they do, what they basically do in whatever form to help stimulate minds is still vitally important, especially in an academic setting. I think this building represents the best of Goucher and from the perspective of a librarian, and in this now perspective as a trustee, what we all hope for, the library to be a place for exchange and interactions, a vehicle for communication and connections with people, past, present, and even future. The placement of the library in this Athenaeum underscores what a great library can do to support institutional mission. And in Goucher's case, to educate and enrich future citizens of the world who will make and this is in the words of a great librarian, Beverly Lynch, who said at another library opening, students who will make not just livings, but lives of substance. So I must then also with recognition and appreciation for the leadership and vision of President Sandy Unger, who worked so closely with the board, the library staff headed by my favorite librarian, Nancy, um, alumni and alumni, friends in the community to have the Anthenaeum at the forefront of the campaign to secure Goucher's future. So thank you, Sandy, for seeing the future by harking back to the foundations of education and learning. We are truly transcending boundaries. Catherine Alamong Jacob from the class of 72. How's this? Okay. Um, I'm thrilled to be here today. The old Goucher Library meant a great deal to me. I can still see the droopy Norfolk pine on the <laughs> landing. I can hear the squeak of the microfilm readers. But I love this new library already. I love what's inside this library, what's inside all libraries, and I suspect that all of you do too. I'm the first in my family to go to college. I never spent much time around libraries or around books. I loved the Goucher Library from the moment I walked in in the fall of 1968. I spent a lot of time there, and at first it was because my roommate smoked. She <laughs> lied on her housing form. Um, but soon I started spending time there because I loved the freedom to graze the shelves. And it had a lot of cool magazines. It was better than a dentist's office. Um, after freshman year, I spent most of my time in the 300s and the 900s. I knew I wanted to be an American history major after my first class with Jean Baker, and so I started concentrating on the 970s. As soon as I saw my first footnotes that cited letters and diaries, I wanted to know more. You could read people's mail? You could read people's diaries? This was a job? I mean, how cool is this? So it was very cool, and I've been very fortunate in my career after Goucher uh, to be both an archivist and a curator and a person who brings in collections to special collections libraries 
and a researcher who has used special collections to write my books. I'm currently curator of manuscripts at the Slazinger Library at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard, and so I'd like to take a few moments to, tell, to address the idea of change in the title of today's symposium and mention a few of the issues with which we grapple at special collections libraries. So the Arthur and Elizabeth Slazinger Library on the History of Women in America was started in 1943 to document the lives of women in America. Women are us. Uh, we have more than 2,600 manuscript collections, over 80,000 volumes on women's history and gender studies, over 500 women's periodicals. We're the only library at Harvard that subscribes to Brides Magazine. Uh, we have artifacts. We have Charlotte Perkins Gilman's death mask. We have 45,000 cataloged photographs and thousands more in the queue. And we have hundreds of cassettes and reels and CDs and DVDs in the AV collection. We take our mission to document the lives of women in America, all sorts of women, very seriously. Our collections cut across race, class, geography, and issues. We have the papers of Julia Child, Amelia Earhart, and Betty Friedan, and the papers of Irish housekeepers, Lowell Mill girls, and farm wives. Our collections can move you to tears. We have letters from women begging for birth control information when it was illegal to dispense it. They can move you to fury. We have letters from obstetricians belittling natural childbirth. They can make you laugh out loud. We have the diary of an 82-year-old woman who recounts her erotic dream about Bill Clinton in 1998. <laughs> she writes, what's wrong with me? He could be my grandson. And then a few lines later, boy, it was great, and six exclamation points. Um, so it's my job to make sure that new manuscript collections that document the late 20th century and the early 20th, 21st century are as rich as our collections that document the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And one of the changes, one of the issues that we face in the future that all aspects of library work encounter is the idea of born digital material. We have letters going back to the early 1800s. We have pocket diaries from the 1850s. We have pink plastic bound diaries with cats with rhinestone eyes from the <laughs> 1950s. I'm guessing that most of you use email, and it may have decreased the amount of real letters that you write. And some of you may have blogs, and some of you may use blogs as your diaries. Many women do. But just the fact that the medium has changed doesn't mean that we can stop collecting women's private writings, like diaries and letters. But how do we capture email and blogs? Which blogs among the hundreds of thousands should we go after? How do we catalog them? How do we make them accessible? How do we store them? How do we protect them from degradation? We're in the middle of a project right now to try and answer some of these questions. Some of the questions are technical, some of them are legal. Who owns the blogs on the web? Do we have to ask anyone's permission? What happens if the creator is under 18? We wanted our web crawler to go out and capture, not to capture blogs that we've identified, and one of them is a teenage girl, an Iranian-American teenager in Detroit. Another is of young Mormon mothers. Um, we wanted to capture their blogs, but also one click out. So if the teenager says, I have a new favorite song, click here to hear it, 
we wanted to capture that one click away. But the problem we quickly learned is you can't always know who's advertising on that one click away site, like pornographers. So we heard from the Harvard Legal Counsel's office within seconds of this test launch. Um, so born digital material like blogs, like email, <clears throat> excuse me, like email, like zines, opens up the possibility of including women whose lives have not been heard in the story of women in America. Homeless women are a good example. Many shelters and public libraries offer access to computers, instruction on how to use them, and encouragement to homeless women to contribute to blogs documenting poverty in America. So there's a lot of potential in this changing world. I'm grateful to the Goucher Library for setting me on this path, and I hope we can explore it together in the question section. Jim Neal. Thank you. It's really an honor to be part of this symposium celebrating the opening of this new library at Goucher. It's rare, I think, sometimes for a concept to move to program, to move to reality. And I think it's important to recognize the extraordinary leadership and achievements which allow something like this uh, to happen. Uh, with apologies to some of my library colleagues, I thought it was appropriate to trot out one of the stories that I often like to use in occasions like this. And it relates to the experience of the Irish author, uh, George Bernard Shaw, who was opening a new play in London. He wrote a letter to Winston Churchill. Dear Mr. Churchill, uh, I really would like you to attend the opening night's performance of my new play, and I enclose two tickets for you, Mr. Churchill. One is for you, and one is for a friend, if you have one. Um, well, <laughs> Churchill quickly replied, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Shaw, but I have another commitment that evening, uh, but I would be very appreciative if you sent me two tickets uh, to the second night's performance, if there is one. Um, <laughs> Uh, library of the future, uh, will there be one? Uh, I think this evidences for us the survival uh, of the library. I think the fundamental question we ask is whether it will continue to have relevance and impact. This library lands in a very, very dynamic world. We know all the extraordinary trends that we're experiencing that touch upon the role and purpose of library. Uh, we could depend on a common experience uh, when we entered libraries in our lives. But we know that that library is becoming increasingly personalized and customized. We know the sense of openness which the library provides, reaching its collections and services way beyond the walls of this building. The sense of ATM, the sense that I can do anything that I want to do and do it by myself, whether it's scanning my own groceries at the supermarket or taking my money out of a bank machine. I want that same self-service capacity where I go and where I work. The sense of usability, not designing libraries for the purposes of confusing and justifying, if you will, the role of the librarian, but making them usable and purposeful in helping students and faculty do their work. The sense of assessment, knowing that we need to think very carefully about whether we are having an impact and fulfilling our role, recognizing that our assessment cannot be measured by the number of people coming in that door or the number of books on our shelves, but increasingly by whether Goucher has successful graduates, whether its faculty is productive, whether its administration is efficient. The notion that strategic planning uh, is probably something that led to, the, led to the creation of this new space. 
but there are too many strategic plans sitting on shelves and how critical it is to think and act strategically, not just write and plan strategically. And also the notion that we live as libraries and librarians in a very competitive environment. There are new and very powerful information uh, resources uh, that our students and faculty turn to, which are not the library. So I think we need to very, think very carefully how that impacts what we have as space. In many ways, we've created Trump Loy libraries, tricks of the eye. Uh, when you walk in there, you don't see, if you will, the traditional trappings that you would expect to find in a library, much less exercise equipment on the top floor. Um, <laughs> but we know that library use trends and technology is in very, very many ways a catalyst to these trends, is encouraging us to think about libraries not as storage spaces for those collections, but as learning spaces, social spaces, intellectual spaces, spaces that have to be built on a sense of, of, of diversity, uh, private space, collaborative space, designing for flexibility and agility. Ultimately, we need to care about the student experience, particularly in a college library setting like Goucher's. What do students want? We know that they want information and technology ubiquity. They want it everywhere, all the time. They want point-of-need information. They want that service and support from the library staff, regardless of where they're at or where that need may pursue. They want web-based services. They want no lines. They want no hours. That's why this library has a 24-hour capacity. They want privacy space. They want collaborative space. They want to be fluent in information. And when they leave this university, when they leave this college, they want to be sure that all the advantages of information availability and access that they enjoy as students don't get lost. And sometimes we don't think about alumni in terms of what they're losing when they leave the college or university environment. We often talk about the library as a virtual resource. It's almost become a trite expression. But I think that, that virtuality sometimes get, gets mixed up with the absence of what I call the virtuoso library. That virtuosity, uh, that, that really compelling expertise that the library and the librarians bring to the learning and research environments of the college. But that's not enough either, because I would argue we also need to think of the library as a virtuous resource, one that cares and advocates for its users, that really not just does that in the campus environment, but also builds a capacity to look at some of the extraordinary national information policy issues that we're dealing with, intellectual freedom, privacy, fair use, um, open access to information. All of those matter to the library and matter, I think, to teaching, learning, and scholarship as we look forward. We have to think about how we embrace the human objectives, how we make people successful through the library, how we make people happy and satisfied, how we make people productive, achieving their personal goals and their personal results. How do we move us collectively to something better? How do we focus on progress? Relationships are an important part of the design of any library space today, and we need to think about those connections and those attachments. The observation or participatory nature of the library needs to be enhanced, and the significant effect, the impact that individuals will have on their world, on their community, I think the library can and should play a very important role. I think we come to a very important part, a, a position, I think, in library development. We find ourselves increasingly pretty anxious about what is developing around us. Marshall McLuhan once said, our age of anxiety is in great part 
the result of trying to do today's jobs with yesterday's tools. So how do we design for flexibility and adapt adaptability? How do we con sort of enable our users to grow as the technology shift and expand? Clayton Christensen once said that one of the litmus tests is that a disruptive technology enables a larger population of less skilled people to do things that historically only an expert could. Our students approach us, I think, with extraordinary capacity, extraordinary technology uh, proficiency. But that gap, I think, that they bring is the knowledge and the ability to evaluate the information resources that we present them with. So how do we wed, if you will, that hunger that they have for technology and the information expertise that we have? But ultimately, when I think about libraries, I think about the wonderful world of chaos that we've created. And it was in the education of Henry Adams that it said, chaos often breeds life, while order breeds habit. I wish the Goucher Library and the Goucher community many, many years of chaos. Thank you. Joe Rizzo, on behalf of the Hillier Group, which is how I will always know it, uh, was involved in this project from the very beginning. And I met Joe when I first became president, and uh, Nancy uh, showed me the plans for the expansion of the Julia Rogers Library that had been done by the Hillier Group. Very, uh, very excellent and wonderful plans. And uh, I, on some day or another, I had to tell Joe and his colleagues that um, I didn't think we were going to be able to do it that way, that I didn't think we could raise the money for a $32 million renovation of a library that would still have problems for, for our purposes. And I remember how good-natured the architects were about all this and uh, how uh, indulgent and tolerant they, they were in response. And I can remember specifically, Joe, a time in your Philadelphia office standing around a table as people were drawing things on paper right. and wrinkling them up, throwing them away. As we were trying to come up uh, together, I was the sort of hapless client in the hands of the architects trying together to come up with a new concept. And, and uh, you were really, you and your colleagues were very important to this and I'm grateful to you. So please uh, you. let us hear from you now. Well, you heard, I'm Joe Rizzo, and I've been doing libraries for a long time. And I, did, I will say to, to, to Jim that one of the things I brought to this, to this process was a, a fair amount of chaos, I think, also. <laughs> and I have one, one, I'm a punster, I have one library joke. I think this is an original. And that is the big question in libraries, the big, big question is, do we or don't we? <laughs> That's a bit. <laughs> okay, now, now I'll get serious, okay? Well, you know, first of all, it was very interesting to hear that this was the theme of, 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 for Julia Rogers, this, the college library in a changing world. world never stops changing, and believe me, I've been doing libraries for 35 years. You definitely have to build them to change. It's, it's amazing. Uh, so as I, as I consider this title and, and, the, and the many changes that have, I think have had the greatest effect on higher education, because I think of the library really as, as, as just such an integral part of its community and education, I thought of five, they said I had five minutes, so I thought of five developments, all reflected in the, in the Athenaeum design. I thought it was important to do that, uh, which I believe will continue to uh, influence planning and design of college libraries w well into the future. The most obvious, I think everyone would agree, is the digital re revolution. 
And as Jim pointed out, um, uh, though this has been a, a remarkable element of change in the world and colleges and libraries, it's also brought into question the continued relevance of libraries. But as I saw today, and I hope you saw it today, when you, as soon as you walk in the Athenaeum, the first thing you see is that this, is that Goucher College and this, and this Athenaeum and the library has embraced this technology. And that even though these students have their own laptops and iPods and all sorts of things, that they, they just fill, fill that, uh, that incredible um, Senator Mikulski uh, information comments. So, um, and, and, and what's, what's great, is the second big change, uh, sustainability. The idea of, of concentrating that kind of energy and that kind of resource, staff and technology in one place that's open 24 seven is one of the greenest things I think you can do. Now, sustainable, sustainable design is a much more recent one. I mean, uh, information technology, you know, 30 years ago people were talking about, I didn't think they had any idea how, how big it would be. I certainly, I would have bought more stock if I did. But, but uh, sustainability is really a push that the students have generated. That's, that's really been their push. And I'm not an expert in this, but I have them in my office. And, and for this facility, what I thought was great, because most, the question most asked by people when you talk about sustainability in a library or college project is, gee, can we afford it? But here that question was never really asked. And so this, this facility has incredible features. Number of green roofs, Meadows and rain gardens, high-performance glass facades so you can bring light in without damaging the environment. Extensive use of local and recycled materials. The, the, the terrazzo here is recycled glass. Um, incredible mechanical design concepts like displacement ventilation that only provide and heat and cool the right amount of air for the people that are in the building at any particular po point in time. So these are incredible things, and I think libraries uh, want to be leaders in this, and I think it's phenomenal that the, that the Athenaeum had an opportunity to not only do this, but be an educated, educational tool for this, this, new, this new move. So that was wonderful. The, the next few uh, really relate to the theme, I think. Uh, I don't know who thought of it, trans transcending boundaries. Maybe that was yours, Sandy. But it's I a think group a group effort. <laughs> but you know, uh, you know, one of the ones, you, one of the things you might not think, because we think about it, because we do a lot of higher ed work, and and we're in a position where we're like trustees, we're dealing with the budget, and that is that education, higher education, is it, it just continues to grow in complexity, and 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 specialization, and as the number of disciplines and and programs grows. You need more faculty, more facilities, more resources, and it's higher and higher costs. And we know that we're going to be debating this if we have, right now we're focused on healthcare, but these are the two ends of the extreme. It's the young, it's money for the young, and it's money, money for the old, like me. You know, in other words, it's healthcare and it's, and it's education. And both of them have to change. And the library, I believe, has always in the past and continues to be a central resource that, that, really, that really allows you to share this in a, in a very efficient way. Um, I think that also increased specialization um, has an isolating effect. And, and I know that this is something that would horrify, uh, you know, Sandy, this sense of isolating when you want everyone together. And at many institutions, especially the, the larger universities, they understand this and they have been promoting interdisciplinary uh, collaboration. Well, the library offers uh, really a cost-effective shared venue for, for students, researchers, and faculty to reconnect, to, to collaborate, and to create. And I think this is what's happening here, and, we'll, we'll, and as people really get, get worn into this and really get to learn it, this is going to be remarkable. Um, there's also been tremendous changes in pedagogy and learning environments, and, 
and um, you know, as 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 colleges and universities have, have, have gone beyond the Cartesian model of I teach you learn, um, libraries have basically gradually transformed from static storage centers uh, and and passive study spaces to really active learning environments that create uh, that, that that promote creative thinking and collaborative. Um, uh, problem solving. And, and, and this obviously happens in the, in the Learning Center and the CTLT, but it also, th there are several classrooms here, seminar rooms, loads of meeting rooms, group studies, and all around this space, the kinds of spaces that students like to, to be in to work, to work together, to, to just share time with friends. And, and I think that's a, a, re a remarkable um, uh, a gift to the campus, and, and, and again, also a very green thing. The last thing I think is that and this is somewhat unexpected, I think, from the first question, and that is, um, is that there's, there's been a renewed appreciation of the importance of libraries as a central place on campus. Um, I believe it's because you can get things here you can't get anywhere else. Uh, clearly, you can collaborate and create today, um, but it's also a contemplative retreat. And I was so pleased to see as I walked around here, once they inserted build people into this building, you know, how many people were hanging out in quiet corners, working hard. You know, that's a great thing. But probably the, the most exciting thing, I think, is, is, um, is, the, is, the, is, the, is the fact that this place is a place of community. And I think this is the thing that really Sandy, Sandy connected on tremendously. You know, there's, there's, there, you, there's this tremendous need that, that students and faculty have to have a place where there's enough, there's enough of, a, of, of density, of, of, of occupation. When we asked the question uh, on this campus in our early planning, uh, we asked a number of the students, you know, because we were asked to place this building in the heart of the campus, where we said, gee, you know, where do you think that is? And one of the students, incredibly in intuitive answer, first they were dumbfounded, we asked the question, but was, well, you know, uh, there isn't a place here, it's a beautiful place, a wonderful place, just, you know, physically beautiful campus, but there wasn't a place with the sufficient density, the sufficient activity, number of students, and, and activity level that you could call the heart of the campus. And I believe that's what uh, Sandy and, 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 and uh, was looking for in this facility. And, and I believe that, that that's going to deliver that. So as you, as you walk around today and, and, and see these facilities, I think you should consider all those various aspects. It's been, uh, for me, an incredible you know, honor to work on a, first of all, the chance of building a new library at all is, is an incredible one today. But to build it in a situation like this where it is much more than a library, where it really is, it, you know, I forgot to mention the plan, a crossroads. If you, if you realize you can enter from either sides or the top, that we're, the, the goal there was to get as many people to walk through here, you know, at the busiest central part of the campus, so that, this, that they would never forget this is the place they want to be. So I have to thank everybody. I thank my fellow presenters, but I also want to thank um, Sandy um, and uh, Nancy for having the faith in me, because sometimes that's a little hard, I think, <laughs> to do this, because this is, this is a big deal for, for, for you here and a very big deal for me. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. This is an unusual panel in that we have uh, uh, former president of the American Library Association, our good friend Carla Hayden, and the president-elect of the American Library Association. So it's sort of um, like having a couple different priests to bless the building <laughs> at the same time. And if you think it's hard to become a college president, to become president of the American Library Association <laughs> is really tough. There's usually a contested election, I believe, 
And uh, librarians are very smart, very shrewd, and they are good politicians. Uh, <laughs> the mudslinging can be very bad. We don't have a mudslinging librarian here. And I don't know whether Roberta slings mud or not, but we are very happy to have her with us today. I'm not going to sling any mud. <laughs> and, and actually, Carla and I are here bookending the uh, panel. But um, I, I want to say that it is, in fact, a real pleasure for me to be here. And I'm here representing the American Library Association and Camilla Alir, who is the president and would have been here, but she is in Mexico at the Mexican Library Association's conference. Um, it has been said that no university in the world has ever risen to greatness without a corresponding great library. So it is really an honor to be a part of the celebration of the opening of your beautiful Athenaeum, which is a metaphorical heart, mind, and soul for Goucher College. When I think of libraries, I think of five E's. Um, engage, energize, explore, enlarge, and educate. A library, the best of libraries, challenges. Libraries encourage interaction and participation. And it is in that context that I'm going to make my brief remarks. It was only about 15 years ago, this, it's been about 15 years since we've seen the advent of the World Wide Web's widespread availability. And with the web, we saw a change. It's a change that we are forever going to be living with, and the public embraced that change. I, I actually remember very clearly the first time I saw the World Wide Web in action. I was out in LA at an ALA midwinter meeting, and a gentleman in the Netherlands took text files and picture files from the Library of Congress that we had up on the internet, and he combined them onto a site. It was someone else working with our materials. And when I saw what he was able to do with these exhibition pictures and text files, I knew that there was, in fact, no going back. A colleague of mine was there, and he argued that it was never going to catch on. And he said it wasn't going to catch on because it required upgraded equipment, and people weren't going to spend the money and buy that equipment. And I knew he was wrong. So I'm saying to you today that we are here, and we are experiencing a second major sea change with the proliferation of mobile devices, and particularly the iPhone and its imitators. And this time, unlike what happened with the World Wide Web, the potentially limiting factors of cost and technological savvy, they're just no longer those barriers there. This is not a competition. Your Athenaeum, like libraries everywhere, has an extraordinary opportunity to reach out to users and capture non-users. While libraries will always be valued for providing access to information and as a place for contemplation, reflection, social, and social interaction, these latest mobile devices open possibilities for us. And I think this is really what we've been hearing from everyone here today. They are powerful tools. And frankly, they share a very basic purpose and mutual goal with libraries. Searchability, portability, and shareability. So I'm going to talk with you a little bit about what we have done. And now I'm going to put on my Library of Congress hat and talk to you. We've got at the Library of Congress, and you certainly have the opportunity here, particularly with some of your special collections, 
to digitize and to make those widely available on the World Wide Web. We do that at the Library of Congress. We've got 74 terabytes of storage and we've got 15.3 million items from our collection that are up on the World Wide Web. Now here's what has happened and it's happened very recently. We have had a library blog since the spring of 2007 and it's got 11,000 subscribers but the feeds, but we are now feeding onto a microblogging site using Twitter, and we launched that in January. And as of a month ago, we already have 13,500 subscribers. Only the White House and only NASA have more followers than we have at the Library of Congress, a small federal agency. Furthermore, Twitter has a viral effect, and therefore people are retweeting our library tweets, and that has vastly increased the number and our ability to reach out. Your Athenaeum has the same capability of doing so in the future. We are sharing our videos now, and, and those include, I run the National Book Festival, and we've been done every year videos of those 70-some authors that appear, and we put them up on our website, so anybody, whether you come to the festival or not, will be able to see those tremendous presentations by the authors. We have only begun putting up videos on YouTube in April. Within the first few months of existence, the library's YouTube site ranked fifth in the federal government in terms of channel views and third in terms of the number of subscribers. Like Twitter, you can access the videos and you can watch them on your phone. The phone is going to be incredibly important in the future. iTunes, I'm gonna talk about that for a second because we just launched that site on June 30 and it's using the same videos that are already on YouTube, plus we've been putting up audio-only podcasts. We do a lot of audio-only podcasts with authors who are gonna be coming to the festival and we do that as part of our promotion. We've done a lot of podcasts over the years. We put those things up and within a very short amount of time, one week, more than 40,000 library tracks were downloaded. This gives you some idea of the power of the social media. So, a key component has been allowing our users to share contact, content by embedding. And this is the other thing that is occurring and what you'll be able to see happen. That the YouTube videos, people are putting them onto their own blogs and onto their own social, no social networking pages, so it's pushing these out. And I wanna talk just for a second about something and give you an example of the power here. And this is for you, Nancy. We had a Rosie the Riveter video on the library's website. It was there for a five-year period. It had 20,000 views. We put it up on YouTube. It had nearly 14,000 views in just three months. Our Facebook page just went up as well. We have 5,500 fans. But I'm gonna talk about the one that's the big juggernaut, and that has really been Flickr. That is um, a, social, it's a social media site, it's your photographs. We launched it in 2008. 20 million total views, we're averaging 800,000 a month have occurred since then. And this is most certainly an application for Goucher College to consider given its commitment to exhibitions and to its special collections and in this new building. 
Flickr has allowed us to achieve a number of objectives. We share photos from our collection with people who might never visit the library's website. The library's website might never visit that. We've gained an understanding of how social tagging and community input could benefit the library and the users of the collections, and we have added to the breadth and the depth of our experience with emerging web communities. Finally, I know I'm running out of time here. I just want to mention a few things. We are doing some things right now. We started a media campaign, social uh, SMS, short messaging service, text alerts that we're doing for the, for the book festival. These are all things that you could be doing through, with your library for getting the word out on whatever programs you may have coming up. And a factor to consider a factor you want to consider is that the sheer popularity of what you're doing on these social networking tools pushes the items higher in the search engines rankings so that then people are going, in fact, to your site and finding out more about your institution and your library. In addition to the quantitative factor, there is also the qualitative dimension of engaging individuals and allowing the personal, personalizing of information when they resend it through their networks. We have to redefine success and how we measure it. So this is, this is uh, we've got an entirely new generation. They're growing up with an expectation of digital content, and I'm reiterating what others have said here, and they expect it to be made easily accessible and useful to their individual needs. And these, this is how people, uh, particularly your students, interact now. So in closing, I suggest using your students as your ambassadors and to help you craft the way you use social media to most effectively meet their needs. You are limited only by the degree of your commitment, creativity, and publication restrictions. Well, Nancy, we thought we were completely up to date and <laughs> doing something very radical with the Athenaeum, and Roberta has just given us a challenge or two. Um, we, we have plenty of time now. Right. Um, if people have comments and questions, you might come to the microphones. But before we uh, do that, I, I just, uh, uh, you know, I grew up in a very small town with a very small library that I think of as this place where you had to not just be quiet, but you had to tiptoe around. I mean, that your, maybe your footsteps would disturb some other people. And so just, I thought I might ask everybody on this panel, including Nancy, to tell us just very quickly about you know, one thing, an experience that stands out in your mind, in your memory, an experience you had in the library at some point. Nancy? Oh my. You could be as a, as a library consumer or as a librarian. I think it was when I first started working in libraries and sort of that wonderful feeling of figuring out who the people were with whom I was working and being able to make that connection with something they might like to read. The sort of the, the, their reaction and the fact that somebody took the time to make a connection for them just reinforced for me what a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, place a library could be. Carla? Well, recently, and I had those experiences personally where you browse on the stacks and you love that. But recently, I looked over and saw um, a young mother with her 
uh, child looking at a picture book, a young person, a teenager standing on a skateboard looking at a computer, and then an older gentleman with a younger person playing chess right in Central Hall downtown. I thought, now there we go. That's, that's what it's supposed to be about. Catherine? Um, I vividly remember when I discovered biography in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania Public Library children's section. This was sometime in the mid-1950s, and a publisher, I don't know which one, and I've talked to several children's libraries to try and find out more about this, but they published a series of biographies. There must have been 70 or 80, and they all had a red, white, and blue spine, and so you could find them just visually throughout the collection by looking for that spine. And the first one I read was Luther Burbank, and the second one I read was Madame Curie, and I just read all of them. I still remember X and Y chromosomes in plants and the sweet peas uh, in Luther Burbank's experiment, but I just love biography from the moment I discovered that red, white, and blue series. If, if any of you know any more about it, I'd, I'd love to know. It was fabulous. Jim? Uh, I think my most uh, exhilarating and most uh, horrific experience <laughs> was in December uh, 2001, um, about 11.59 uh, p.m. I was told to be in the general reference room in the Butler Library at Columbia University, and a room that uh, normally holds about 250 to 300 individuals, uh, sort of a New York Public Library grand reading room. Uh, about that time, there were about 4,500 students uh, in that room. Uh, it was known as the Orgo Night. Uh, you may remember that Columbia maintains the core curriculum, and every student takes a shared uh, set of courses over their first several years. And this was the night before the organic chemistry final. And at 12 o'clock, um, everyone went berserk uh, on tops of tables, on tops of the reference desks, climbing on the stacks, and the uh, Columbia University band uh, came through the reading room. Uh, I knew I was in absolutely the right place. <laughs> well, well, I've had um, a couple of um, unusual uh, experiences throughout my life. My first was, um, I was actually pretty independent as a kid, and I grew up in Hoboken, and the, the Carnegie Library in Hoboken, the first time I walked in there on my own, probably about six or seven years old, I was just flabbergasted. It's probably really not that big a building, but I was just amazed at what was available in that facility. And I really never, really never stopped being amazed by libraries after that. Then when I had my kids, you know, that was one of the first things I did. My, my parents were great, but they didn't take me to the library. I just kind of found it. Um, but I made sure all my kids went to the library, and, and it was a really wonderful experience. Again, generally pretty small libraries. And now, you know, as, as a consultant, as a, as a designer, the, the nicest thing I, I, I do is, is, is um, it's usually not, this day's great, day like this, but what I like to do is go after, after the building's been dedicated. And every once in a while when I'm driving through an area, like past the Highland Town Library or the one we did in Delaware for Newcastle, I'll just stop in and see, and seeing the mix of people in a public library, for example, seeing the mix of people in those buildings, just using those buildings all day, it for me is, is terrific. So it kind of spans the whole life lifespan, really. Roberta? Well, I grew up um, a long time ago, like mid-20th century, as they say, and um, we didn't have a school library. 
And we also did not have a public library, even though it was a suburb of Pittsburgh and you would expect we'd have something like that. We did not. We had a bookmobile. And what I remember is we talk a lot about libraries as place, but in, in essence, I didn't have a place. What I had was access to some books, and we would go to the bookmobile every, every week. It was one of the most exciting days for me we could go. And what I remember about libraries is the worlds that it opened to me. When I would check out those books and bring them home and pour over them for that next week until that bookmobile came back again. And those worlds that I entered, those worlds of imagination and creativity, I'm profoundly grateful. So I'm glad you have this beautiful building, but I honor libraries for the, the, what they open to all of us, those worlds. We always talk about it, it sounds trite, but they truly open the worlds for all of us. Worlds of imagination, and that continues into adulthood. I can't help but wonder um, what President Kraushar would think of this building if he were to, uh, to come and, and look at it today, whether he would approve or not, uh, having presided over the opening of the Julia Rogers Library uh, I guess that's 56 years ago now. Um, one other, just one other question I have for all of you, and then I, I, if any of you have comments or questions, I hope you will come forward. But what do we, uh, what do we need to think about now, uh, to if if we wonder how to make sure this library in this Athenaeum stays relevant and important and useful, say 25, 30, even. 50 years from now, what, will we, what, will we have to, what do we have to start thinking about now in the hope that we won't have to, Goucher won't have to build another library, <laughs> but we'll be able to uh, adapt this one? Anyone? Jim? I think the most important uh, value to keep out in front of Goucher is uh, for the library to remain focused on the people. Uh, I think historically, if you look at the development and design of libraries, we started with the collection. Uh, we sort of built a, a core uh, where we would house the materials and then put spaces for staff and users around it. So I think we need to very much start, uh, start, start with the people who are going to use this space and take advantage of this space. I think we've seen uh, uh, under the impact of the web and other technolo technologies, uh, we've seen what we used to call reference. Uh, you know, Columbia was sort of the reference capital of the world for many years in terms of uh, the leadership that came out of there and the work and the publica publications that came out of there. Uh, but reference is fundamentally on the web. Uh, journals, uh, faculty and students used to come physically to the library uh, to get the latest information and research out of the scholarly journals and magazines. Uh, at Columbia now, and I'm sure at many other uh, university and college libraries, we, we are pushing out 90,000 90, electronic journals uh, to our faculty and students anywhere they are in the world. And very often that goes back to volume one, number one. Not the latest issues, but the entire run. And it took Columbia about uh, 250 years to build a collection of 10 million book volumes. In the last five years, we've built a collection of five million electronic books. This transforms, if you will, uh, the, the fundamental nature of, in how our faculty and students interact with information. So keeping focus on the people, uh, I think, is the fundamental responsibility and what will keep this library and others vital and uh, continue to have relevance and impact. Anyone else? Catherine? Um. 
think that's a pretty good summary. <laughs> yes, Roberta. Just to build on what uh, Jim said is that I think that, and, and this is what I was saying at the end, is you need to build uh, those users into the conversation. So what has to be constantly a constant element is to be talking with them, to be assessing what are those needs that they have, how do they want to have that information delivered to them, and to really be fleet of foot so that you can make those changes, and to learn to let go, to let go of limiting thinking and limiting behaviors and limitations in how you are delivering the services that you do deliver. You know, we let go of all our bound periodicals, didn't we, Nancy? That was fine. It was very... Not all. <laughs> <laughs> the There's still some hiding places in the Athenaeum. Does anybody want to add anything? Uh, Anyone have any questions or, or comments about the, uh, about the Athenaeum? Yes, will you come to the mic? Can you? No, I need you to come to the microphone so people can hear you all the way back there. Thank you. And tell us who you are, please. Uh, my name is John Milnor. My mother was the class of uh, 1925. My sister year. was the class of 1955. They were both, they're both retired librarians. Um, I want to ask the contractor, what is the most innovative thing that we saw today on the tour? There's a lot of really innovative technology in this structure, so is there one innovative thing that really stands out from the environmental field or the architectural field? Let, let's be clear that uh, Joe is one of the architects right, right. and that Whiting Turner uh, actually constructed yeah, the building for us, but, but we'd still like to hear your answer. Yeah, I, I think that, well, it's hard to pick one. I mean, I think, I think the, way it's, the way it's all integrated, for example, uh, uh, you know, sustain, the sustainable design stuff that we're doing, um, the, the, the ability to do, do that in a new building on a new site, that's a remarkable one. You know, it, very often you're trying, you're trying to do that in a renovation. It can be done, very difficult. But the ability to, 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 to take on all of those things I talked about earlier, the, the materials that you use in the building, these, the, I think the, the, the air conditioning systems with the displacement, you know, uh, ventilation, you know, the fact that you can control a building with so many, so many exposures, you know, with so much glass, and still do that economically, you know, and, and comfortably is, is pretty incredible. I, I think the way that, that uh, they're, they're less visible, but the way that water is handled so that there's practically no impact uh, in terms of water, watershed here, and of course the fact that I think we're in two... We're in two watersheds, <laughs> Baltimore County and Baltimore City. We have to get their approvals. Uh, th those are incredible. So this building is a real testing ground for that, for, for, for Goucher. So that, in terms of technical things, I think that's, that's, that's phenomenal. Uh, and you know, you can go on forever, the glass, all, all of the, the, just the way to be able to bring in the light and shade it, have those things um, do all of that is, is, is incredible. I think that in terms of, um, you know the, the 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 earlier question about you know how do you how do you stay how do you stay relevant how do you you know how is this place going to stay alive for the next 50 years I think that I think that the 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 the, the big issue here the last one I talked about and I and I cut it off quickly because I knew I was running out of time of this community situation if you see the way students work together today you know they 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 do this everywhere but. This type of building, I, I think this, this type of place gives them the resources, gives them the experts, but also gives them incredible number of opportunities and, and modes to work together. I think that um, you know, the way the pedagogy has changed, the way the learning has changed today, 
this team-oriented, problem-solving approach. That may change in 50 years, but I can tell you if it does, most librarians like Nancy will change with it. But today, I think this really hits that. It's that on. Thank you. Joe? Uh, good afternoon. I'm Joe Morton. I used to teach here. Um, I'd like to make a, a, I want to propose a hypothesis for your consideration, and I'm not going to take long, so I have to put it very bluntly. Um, I believe that libraries are the only major institutions in society that are not coercive, not hierarchical, not competitive. You can walk in, nobody tells you, you've got to read this book before you read that book, and so on. Now, I have a lot of uh, faith in my colleagues, uh, whom I've worked with for 40 years or so. I'm sure that they try to make their courses as little competitive and coercive and so on as possible. But the system requires that you make distinctions, that there be a hierarchy, and so on. Uh, and I think the fact that uh, we have so few institutions that are not coercive and hierarchical explains how this nation, explains partly how this nation, where we have the most fabulous resources of any nation uh, imaginable, we have information, resources, and so on, we put up with outrageous uh, infringements on personal liberties and so on because people are so dominated, they're so used to looking up to authorities, not doing things for themselves, not having initiative. Uh, so uh, I, I would like, I would hope that other institutions could become more like libraries, which I think are the ideal as far as I can see. Um, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> Maybe some of you have some ideas. Thank you, Joe. Um, I celebrate your comments, uh, but I would argue that that position or that uh, vision of libraries does not come out, does not, uh, was not achieved without a lot of hard work and a lot of what I would call blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, in my introduction, they did not mention that I've just served four years uh, on the board of the Freedom to Read Foundation. And what I've learned in that process is how uh, if we provide uh, access to different points of view and different types of information, sometimes we as librarians are characterized as pornographers. Um, if we're providing access to information under the uh, umbrella of fair use and the exceptions in our copyright law, we're called pirates. Um, and so libraries suffer a great deal, if you will, in protecting the interest of our users so that they have the widest access to information. Um, I think that one of the biggest challenges we face is not the digital divide. We've talked about how important it is to provide as much uh, and wide access to the internet and to technology. I think we're facing an extraordinary knowledge divide. Uh, we do that largely because of the extraordinary price of information. So one of the things librarians are particularly focused on now is open access to information. How can we make the information, for example, that we as taxpayers pay for uh, through federal grants to research, how can we make the results of that research openly available to anyone around the world who needs access to that scientific information or that medical information? So the battles, wow. So I think we appreciate your, your, your commendation, 
but the battle continues. Joe, I, I, I'm, um, I appreciate your comments very much, and I think that uh, without necessarily um, thinking about it, we have made the Athenaeum a very democratic place in the sense that this is not a hierarchical building, and it is uh, really up to the students to define what this building will become and how it will be used. And that's been one of the most exciting things of just the last 10 days to two weeks is to watch the people come into this building and discover how it should and can be used. And I think that if, if we're lucky, we did a good job setting the stage for them to do that. And Nancy just nudged me to um, say that um, in terms of more institutions like libraries, there's a need to support the libraries that already exist. At a time when more people are flooding into public libraries, and I see Jim Fish here from the head of the uh, Baltimore County system, uh, more people than ever are using libraries. That's the people's university. People need that information about all types of things. They also are facing uh, fiscal challenges, and they're sometimes the easiest uh, targets during budget time. So Roberta has a, a yeah, real I, challenge I, in terms of that, too. So I, if they would support the 15,000, there are more public libraries in this country than McDonald's. We think that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> That's good. And so we need to support those. Yeah, I, I, what I find, I thought your comments were great. And, and the one thing that, that concerns me, I have to tell you, as, as, as more of these incredible things become even more available to people virtually, as, as Roberta was saying, is that what I've sensed is that it, is, it's, you've got to be careful not to take it for granted. As these things become as easy as the click away to get them, they become more like utilities. And for, you know, for, for the no one really appreciates what it takes to bring water and remove sewage and do all of those things that have to happen out there. But it's a tremendous investment. And the, the one difference between receiving information that way and coming into a huge building is you don't see the people, the work, all the resources that went into getting that out to you. So that's a, that's a concern I have because for people, I think it's important and, you know, to, to maybe brand or advertise where it's coming from. In other words, I don't think libra libraries can't afford to forget to tell people, as Jim said, that it doesn't happen easy. It looks easy, but I think that would be a very big mistake if you, if you, if you made it easy and then didn't explain how difficult it really was. Yes, sir. My name is uh, Mark Turner, and I did not graduate here. <laughs> My connection is through Nancy. Nancy, you going to second me there? Yes. Yeah, very good. Thank you. And Jane so, Austen. And Jane Austen, that's right, exactly. So uh, a few minutes ago, somebody uh, issued a challenge on what the future users of this facility might need. And I had a uh, research and development group uh, dedicated to content processing and private industry. And so I wanted to uh, make a suggestion to meet that challenge. Um, I think it was uh, Ms. Stevens who pointed out that um, phones and similar devices, small devices, are becoming more important, and that's very true. But if we take a look at the total, at the devices that are available today, for students and others to collaborate with. We have really the traditional eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. We have a 22 inch monitor. We have the iPhone 
And then in passive mode, we have a screen that teachers are projecting on. But there are some emerging kinds of modes and devices that I think are going to be important. One is uh, things like the virtual desk. Some of you have probably seen this uh, demonstrated. And others are things like a, sort of a virtual screen where groups of people can uh, actually uh, put up content and move it around with very simple kinds of, um, of hardware. So my challenge is, will this facility here be able to accommodate a group of students gathered around who want to lay out a set of documents, move them around with their hands, and, uh, and work together in a mode like that. So that's my little challenge. We'll, we will accept that challenge. Good afternoon. I'm Richard Working from the Naval Academy. Uh, I'd like to make an observation. Could you get a little closer to the oh, microphone, sure. please? Sure. I'm Richard Working from the Naval Academy. I'd like to respond to your question about what you might be thinking about uh, in, in future months, years, decades. Um, drawing on observations that two of your panelists made, Carla, when she was talking about this process beginning in 1999, had to do with how could the library advance the mission of the college. And Jim talked about focusing on the people. And I guess I'd like to build on those two observations and bring the faculty into this conversation. That it's really uh, very important, as li academic librarians are well aware, for the faculty-librarian collaboration to be advancing the educational mission of the college. The uh, preeminent college librarian of the last third of the um, 20th century, Evan Farber at Earlham College, put great emphasis on librarians working with the faculty and would even say the heretical thing, the library is not the heart of the college. It's the teaching learning process that's at the heart of the college and it's the library's contribution to that process that's paramount. And in fact, he referred to the library uh, very succinctly as an instrument of education. And I think keeping that very much in the mix is important. Thank you. Sure. I, think it was, uh, I think it was Clark Kerr, the uh, chancellor of the University of California, who once described the faculty as a group of individual entrepreneurs held together by a common concern over parking. Um, <laughs> So I think, I think it's, I, think it's uh, I would ex encourage caution in talking about the faculty uh, because uh, my experience is that uh, they bring to the information service community that we provide an extraordinary diversity of needs and interests. Uh, they're not just disciplinary in their differences, but they, uh, they, they uh, change dramatically by age when they got their graduate degrees, by where they publish and how they publish. Uh, and whether they're part of a, 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 a historian who sits in an office in a library and develops that capacity, or they're part of a global research team breaking new ground in science. So understanding the diversity of needs and interests that faculty bring to a library, uh, I think is something uh, that we increasingly have to understand and respond to. Um, I'd just like to add to that and, and to second what you said, but I, uh, would share a, an anecdote of um, a university whose new president didn't have a very high regard for libraries, uh, was proud of the fact that as an undergraduate at that institution he hadn't visited any of the libraries, 
um, he had a great deal of respect for science and what went on in scientific labs at the university. And so the way that the libraries and the librarians who were arguing for budget increases or just sustain, uh, sustaining uh, financing were very successful in referring to libraries as the wet labs of the humanities. He uh, has invested in the word. Of course, the word Athenaeum has a, a long historical <laughs> meaning, uh, but what does it what does it mean here at, at Goucher? Uh, well, briefly, because I could talk about this for quite some time, uh, but, but briefly the concept was, um, well, the Athenaeum in ancient times, as you may know, that much has been written about this, but the Athenaeum in ancient times was a central gathering place where people came. There wasn't a distinction, uh, as there has been in modern life, between uh, intellectual life, cultural life, social life, there was a central gathering point if you had something to say, if you had something you were worried about, some questions you wanted to ask, um, uh, music you wanted to hear, whatever, you, it was all a central gathering point. And uh, when we were uh, trying to uh, decide how to explain this concept of a new library that was part of a central gathering point on campus, there seemed no better word. There are Athenaea in various places, especially in New England, in Boston, Providence, Newport. Uh, there is one in Alexandria, Virginia, which is just a uh, gathering place, a hall you can rent to get together with people. Um, there's a speaker series at the uh, Claremont McKenna College in, in uh, Claremont, California, that is called the Athenaeum, because it is a, a, a series of speakers on, on any subject at any time. So we... Uh, uh, fastened on that as an, a, a concept, a, a traditional one and a modern one at the same time that yes, we would have an art gallery, a forum where people could talk about things, listen to music, uh, have public programs and in sort of amphitheater style um, and uh, a commuter lounge, uh, exercise space, yes, a cafe. Uh, all in one place to to respond to the needs of the total the total person and to me uh, putting the library the the uh, central uh, vehicle for intellectual life in many respects putting the library at the heart of that facility was a very important statement in brief that's what we felt we were doing Nancy I want to thank all of our speakers and our moderator. You guys have been wonderful. I'm so honored to have had you as part of this day. And this wonderful audience for being part of our very special events. And a special thank you to the many people in and out of the library who worked on this event, and you know who you are. Uh, we're now, next, we're going to adjourn to Alice's Restaurant for a dessert reception. And we are going to have music. It is an Athenaeum. Uh, we're going to begin that with a ceremonial cutting of the cake, and I hope you'll, um, uh, you'll all take a look at it. It features that lovely quote from uh, uh, Jorge Luis Borges, I always imagined paradise to be a kind of library. Thank you, Marilyn Warshawski, for pointing that out. Um, if you didn't get a tour earlier, we'll have leaders on hand to take you around now, and please stay and talk to each other. Thank you so much for being part of this day. Thank you.
And one of our Goucher traditions is to have a little present for the speakers. I might, Phil. I might also mention that uh, tomorrow evening, in this same space, we have a conversation about the future of liberal arts education, uh, to which we would welcome you. And on Saturday afternoon at 1:30, um, the really grand, grand opening of the Athenaeum, the laying of the cornerstone, with my predecessors, and uh, a great celebration Saturday afternoon.